right, so uh, McCarthy actually does not have enough votes to become Speaker of the House. 203. Hakeem Jeffries got 212. <laughs> there were 19 votes for other candidates. I think most of those went to Andy Biggs. So they're moving to another round of uh, voting for U.S. Speaker of the House. Uh, let's uh, let's zoom on into North Carolina politics. I want to welcome uh, back to the program Andrew Dunn. You can read his work at longleafpolitics.substack.com. Andrew, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you doing? I am doing very well. Very well. Did you have a good holiday season? Oh, yeah, I sure did. It's, it's always fun with four little ones running around. <laughs> That's right. That's the best, uh, it's the best time when they're that young. So, um, and you still had time to write seven big questions for North Carolina politics in 2023. You went over, I think, uh, these are the big ones, I think. So uh, let, let's start with uh, the fact that, right, we don't have uh, any big elections for statewide office or anything in 2023. But I think you said no high-profile elections but plenty of positioning we're going to start seeing. So let's run through some of uh, some of the positioning. We'll start at the top of the ticket there. Governor uh, Roy Cooper, term limited. What are we looking at? Yeah, well, it's actually kind of unusual in that the, the governor's race may already be decided, uh, especially on the Republican side. You have Lieutenant Governor Mark Robinson, who hasn't formally announced that he's going to be running in 2024, but has has definitely signaled that he's all but announced that he's going to be running. Uh, he's raising money as if uh, he would be running, and he's in an absolutely dominant position in a potential Republican primary. There's been some polling out in the last few weeks that shows him with just you know 50 percentage point advantages over anybody else who could conceivably run, including uh, former Governor uh, Pat McCrory or U.S. Senator Tom Tillis. So. Um, that that one is all but over and done with already. You know, on the Democrat side, everybody's pointing to Attorney General Josh Stein. Now, you may recall that uh, that our current Governor Roy Cooper was Attorney General before. It's it's often been uh, a stepping stone for the governor's office. Uh, so Josh Stein is is also raising money like he's running. He doesn't quite have uh, the polling support. Uh, as Mark Robinson does, uh, but he, he'll definitely have the money to make a great run. You had another write-up um, a couple of days prior, uh, right uh, day after Christmas, I think, uh, talking about the governor's race and the amount of money that might be required in order to win this, particularly for uh, Mark Robinson, lieutenant governor. He sent out a fundraising email, and he said he's expecting $100 million to be spent on the race, and you think, yeah, that's probably an accurate number? Yeah, I would say so. I mean, North Carolina governor's races have steadily been getting more expensive over the last few cycles. You know, they're still way short of a U.S. Senate race here in North Carolina. Those typically attract, you know, millions and millions of dollars of outside money that the governor's race just doesn't. Um, but here in North Carolina, you know, the, the Roy Cooper uh, has been a, a phenomenal fundraiser. I mean, he spent uh, some $40 million from his campaign alone in the last cycle, which was an unprecedented amount in the North Carolina governor's race. I would expect uh, Attorney General Josh Stein on the Democrat side to be able to tap into a lot of those channels. And, and you know, especially with trying to win an open seat, he's going to have to spend even more money. So that's going to put a lot of pressure on the Robinson campaign to be able to raise money like a, a Republican gubernatorial candidate has never done before in North Carolina. You you wrote in that uh, that other piece that you didn't see a path for 
Republicans to outraise and outspend Democrats because their money machine is powerful. You called it well cultivated in the state and the Republican fundraising is so far behind. So why is that? And you you used to work for uh, you worked on Dan Forrest's campaign, right? I did. I did. I, I, I was not involved on the fundraising side, so I'm, I'm not 100 percent in tuned on that. But, you know, from what I can tell as an observer is the Democratic Party has cultivated a large number of, of high dollar donors, uh, where on the Republican side, it's traditionally been a lot more uh, low dollar donors. Those have been a lot more successful. Uh, and it's just it just takes a lot more low dollar donors to equal a large dollar donor. How much of that do you think has its origin in, especially with regard to Cooper, in the HB2 fight? Because it seems like at that point, he really started uh, nationalizing North Carolina politics with the, the bathroom access stuff. And he got, you know, the Salesforce CEO, uh, he got these other you know big business leaders to, you know, move money and 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 essentially use a bully pulpit against, you know, Pat McCrory in the General Assembly. And, and did, I don't know, do I, do you trace any of that back to that fight? And that gave him a lot of the connections? Uh, I think you're onto something that I, I think the, the, the bigger thing is that Roy Cooper has always kind of positioned himself as the last bulwark against oblivion, you know, from, from a democratic <laughs> perspective. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, if, if, your listeners probably get a lot of political emails and the subject lines are always something dramatic like that. And that's been Cooper's uh, MO from, from the moment he took office. I am the only one who can save you. So send me money. Uh, And it's clearly been effective for him. Yeah. What about, you mentioned uh, Tom Tillis as a potential gubernatorial candidate. Uh, He's got some issues, I think winning in a a statewide race, although he won for us Senate. But I think, I think that calculation is different uh, for the governor's seat. But what about uh, what about Dale Falwell? Is he interested in this race? He's said that he'll consider it, um, and I think he'd be an excellent candidate. Um, the only issue is he definitely does not have near the name ID as a Mark Robinson. Um, he's not. He's also not the most you know charismatic. You know, going to give a big speech and, and rally the troops. He's much more laid back, um, kind of quiet competence style public servant, I, I think it would be hard for him to break through, um, especially against a, a person like Mark Robinson. So does Robinson's uh, speeches at the churches and the comments on the LGBT issues and such, does that, does that make him, does that, is that a harder path for him now because of those, the, those types of comments? Uh, I don't think so in in a primary election. Uh, I think it'll definitely be a challenge for him in a general election. Yeah, I mean the the media is going to just absolutely try to tear him apart. Um, and I think in general, a general election electorate in North Carolina kind of wants they don't really like controversy. I think they're looking for somebody who's perceived as steady, calming, kind of going to be good for business and not to say that Robinson wouldn't be, but that's going to be the narrative that, uh, that his opponents are going to paint is that he's going to just be a bomb thrower. That's going to you know blow everything up. Yeah. Um, there was, Oh, Mark Johnson, you had an interesting uh, point about him. I know I'm like, I'm all over the place, but you, you covered a lot of different topics in, uh, in these last two, uh, posts. And by the way, you can get this at 
longleafpolitics.substack.com. This is Andrew Dunn. He writes it. Uh, Mark Johnson. I used to interview Mark Johnson when he was the pub- uh, superintendent for public instruction uh, for the state of North Carolina about every other week or so. And I was, frankly, really surprised when he bailed, when he said he wasn't going to run for re-election. And uh, now he has resurfaced. Uh, where did he land? So Mark Johnson has just taken a job as Ted Budd, incoming uh, U.S. Senator Ted Budd's state director. You know, that's basically the person that manages constituent services here in North Carolina, kind of serves as a liaison between businesses and, and organizations here in North Carolina and the senator's office. Definitely an interesting role. Uh, it's not something you see a whole lot where somebody goes from council of state to state director, um, but he certainly has the connections to be successful with that. Yeah. Uh, all right. So we're going to take a quick break. We'll have more with Andrew Dunn here in a minute. We're going to talk about uh, the the uh, legislative super majority. Is that actually going to uh, materialize a working super majority uh, or otherwise? Um, as well as the uh, the Cooper political machine, I thought was pretty interesting. He had a uh, an interesting citation on that. Newstalk eleven ten ninety nine three WBT. All right, I got Andrew Dunn on with me. He writes a uh, newsletter called Longleaf Politics. Dot Substack. You can get uh, at the Substack. Subscribe over there. He writes a lot of good stuff. He's worked in uh, journalism and in uh, North Carolina politics for years now, and. He's got a piece up called Seven Big Questions for North Carolina Politics in 2023. Kind of been bouncing around uh, on from this one and a previous uh, post that he uh, also pushed out a couple days prior, which is about the governor's race and the fundraising. But once you get into this supermajority, this was what everybody was watching, right, during the last election cycle. Would the Republicans be able to secure enough seats for a supermajority in the Senate and the House? They got it for the Senate. They didn't get it for the House. So... What do you think it means for the upcoming long session? Well, I, I, we're going to have to see. Uh, so the Republicans came up just one vote shy of a supermajority in the House, uh, which means that Republicans would only need to get one Democrat to either not show up or to, to switch, uh, you know, vote against um, his party and support a Republican bid to override a veto. Now, for the last two years, um, Governor Roy Cooper has been able to really stymie just about anything, any bill that he doesn't like, as he's been very, very effective in sustaining his veto. Um, but there's going to be much different dynamics this time around when it's just one vote. You know, before that, there, there, the Republicans didn't have supermajorities in either chamber, and it was, you know, three or four votes. And it they never, uh, Republicans were never able to get that many votes, enough votes to override a veto. But when it's just one vote and one chamber, I think it's definitely a lot more doable to actually override a veto and for Republicans to get some legislation passed over the governor's objection. Even without Kirk, no, he's in the Senate. He was in the Senate. He's not there any longer. But uh, to your point, though, this was, I think, his um, his ouster in that Democrat primary to Senator-elect now Val Applewhite uh, Ray, uh, Roy Cooper poured tons of money into that race specifically to oust that sitting Democrat who was not, um, as I understand it, he, he's not some right wing Democrat. He was a pretty progressive Democrat, but he had crossed Cooper. And uh, and he then makes mention of this in a podcast uh, with the News and Observer that he called it, you know, the, there is a political machine that operates that. You And I guess 
you can confirm that that is true. Yes, that, that's <laughs> definitely true. Um, and I think what Governor Cooper was showing here is that, you know, he's, he's not just making empty threats. He will follow through on it. And that's exactly what he did. You know, Senator Devere um, was willing to go against Governor Cooper and vote to override his vetoes. And so sure enough, here in the next election cycle, Governor Cooper basically uh, took him out single-handedly by, by funding a primary opponent. Um, so he, he's, he's not messing around. So we'll see uh, if he's still quite that persuasive here in, uh, in the new legislative session. Well, and if he doesn't have, like, because they kind of go hand-in-hand hand with the veto, right? This, this ability to take out somebody because you've got the money, but you've got the money because, as you mentioned earlier, you've positioned yourself as the, as the firewall against the abyss, and so if he's not up for re-election, he's term-limited, he becomes lame duck. Does that impact his fundraising to some extent, and then does that limit his ability to follow through on the threats? Well, I, I, it'll be interesting to see what Governor Cooper does with his fundraising. You know, he is a lame duck. He's not running for election, but he is still the sitting governor. And sitting governors typically don't have too much trouble raising money. People definitely still want an audience with a sitting governor. So I'd imagine that he'd still raise a substantial amount of money over the next two years that he can use as he sees fit in whatever races he sees fit. Right. He's also... And I don't, I don't know how long he's in charge, but uh, the Democratic Governors Association, too. So he's still he's making a lot of connections. So I'm, <laughs> I don't know if that portends uh, good things for North Carolinians here. Uh, do you? All right. So here's one you didn't talk about in your thing, but I'll throw it to you. Um, do you think he might run for U.S. Senate at some point? Roy Cooper? He may. You know, in 2024, there is no U.S. Senate seat on mm-hmm. the ballot. Um, so there, there's not another race coming up soon. So the nearest would be 2026. You know, a lot can change between now and then. Um, I could see Governor Cooper running for it, but uh, he'll also, you know, four years from now, he'll be, uh, you know, four years older than he is now. You know, he's not old by any means, but he's not, not super young either. If I had to guess, I would say he will not run for anything again, but, uh, but who knows? Yeah. Uh, you make this point about the age uh, of a Council of State member. Secretary of State Elaine Marshall, I did not realize, she's going to be 82 by the end of her term. And so she may not run again. Agriculture Commissioner Steve Troxler, he may not run again. I, I, and I'm not sure about his health conditions. I think I've heard people are uh, kind of worried or concerned that you know he's, he's getting older, but also he seems to have some challenges with like getting around sometimes. And I don't know if that's temporary or not. But there are these questions that are out there. And Troxler, did he get the most votes? Was he the top votainer? Because I refuse to say the word vote getter. Votainer uh, in North Carolina again? Uh, he, among Council of State, he certainly was the highest percentage wise. Right. I don't know if it actually translated into raw number of votes, but he's, uh, he's one of those figures that's just broadly popular everywhere. And Elaine Marshall, she's probably going to retire. So that's interesting. We also have then attorney general candidates because Josh Stein is expected to run for governor. And you threw a name out that folks here in Mecklenburg County know very well. Jeff Jackson. All right. <laughs> so <laughs> baby Jesus going to be the attorney general. If Jeff Jackson, uh, but what is he not going to be? You don't think he's going to be in Congress anymore? I wouldn't say so. You know, he's in the South Charlotte district that was car- that was actually drawn by 
the court system here in North Carolina. His district was not drawn by the General Assembly. Um, and so the General Assembly is going to take another pass at, at drawing new lines, and there is no possible way that they're going to, to carve out something for Jeff Jackson. It's just not going to happen. Do you think that, um, and you make, you raise this as a possibility, that they could draw another district for to try to uh, draw it for Tim Moore? Well, that's what they did in this last cycle. Um, and, you know, they carved out that nice little district over there that, that would have been great for Tim Moore, his, right, his, his home, hometown. Um, but then Madison Cawthorn, you may recall, said that he was going to run in that district. Because remember, in North Carolina, you don't actually have to live in the district that you're running in. Um, so he was going to run in that district despite living in the mountains. But then, of course, it all became moot when the uh, the state Supreme Court threw out all those districts and decided to draw their own. And I still, to this day, I believe that uh, that that's the thing that did Cawthorn in. More than any of the other stories and scandals and videos and all that stuff and the comments he would make, I think it was that he was seen as abandoning uh, his his hometown in western North Carolina, and I think especially in the mountains of western North Carolina, that matters a lot to be seen as abandoning your own people uh, to try to get a bigger play in a bigger market. Yeah, I think you're right. It certainly shows where your priorities lie. Uh, it, it showed that his priorities were more on uh, on himself than on the, the people he was representing. Yeah. Uh, you did mention Madison Cawthorn in uh, this piece as well as one of the primary 2022 primary losers that you were going to be watching. Um, so, uh, first off, uh, you know, what, like what kind of Madison Cawthorn images are you watching? No, I'm kidding. What, um, but like, what, what are you watching about Madison Cawthorn? Well, uh, he very well could make another run for Congress. He's still very popular in, in a lot of circles. He's a dynamic speaker. He has a compelling life story. Uh, if he chose to run again, there's there's a, a very real possibility that he could win uh, a primary nomination. It would really depend on what the districts were like and and how he chose to to frame his comeback. Um, so that that could very well be the case. That he he hasn't uh, he hasn't been very vocal or active lately since his primary defeat. So I don't really have any sense of of what he's going to do next. But he, we're going to know soon enough. Have you heard? His name floated for governor. I think I remember reading some interview with him a couple of years ago where he suggested that he might be interested in a run for governor at some point. If he, I don't know if there's an age limitation on that or not, but uh, that was that was something that was in his mind at the time. Oh gosh, uh, that, that would certainly be an interesting <laughs> primary if it was a Mark Robinson and Madison Cawthorn primary. But I, I, I don't see it. I don't see him running for governor this cycle. No, I I tend to agree with you. Uh, real quick. Um, did you catch any of the utilities commission with the Duke Power people today? Because you wrote about the outages uh, for Duke Power as well. Did you catch any of that today? Uh, no, I haven't. I'm going to be tuning into that a little bit later. I'll, I'll have to listen on WBT. To oh, there you go. So you're trying to get on a promo right there, Andrew. That's good work. Um, <laughs> as uh, but you wrote us. Uh, you were talking about this this implementation of this uh, of this plan to reduce our carbon emissions, and it's one of the things that in watching this morning's session, I was kind of concerned about it seems like they did not generate enough power and if this is if this is going to be an ongoing problem now i think then we may have to revisit this plan no i agree 100 percent. i mean it's clear that 
North Carolina is not generating enough power here in the state to serve North Carolinians when it gets cold out. Um, in a normal circumstance, Duke Energy would buy power from, from outside the state, but when it was so cold all around the country, that just wasn't possible. And it, 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 that doesn't, doesn't strike me as a good strategy. I mean, you would want your utility company to be able to generate enough power uh, for your state, um, and I hope the Utilities Commission will make that a priority. Yeah, I agree. Uh, you can read his work at longleafpolitics.substack.com. His name is Andrew Dunn. Always enjoy talking with you, Andrew. Thanks so much, and uh, we'll uh, chat again soon. Yes, sir. Thank you. All right. You. Take care. News Talk 1110-993-WBT. Thanks again to Andrew Dunn, Longleaf Politics. I, keep, I wanted to keep saying longleafpolitics.com, but I think, and I've done it myself, too. I've let a URL, the domain name, I let it expire. <laughs> so He's writing at Substack. I urge you, subscribe to his Substack. It is, uh, if you're into North Carolina politics, it's well worth uh, the sub. Um, and it's, I mean, I, he gives away free content as well, but you can also financially support him uh, if you would like as well. Um, here's something else you might like. I know you will, actually. I got an email from somebody who said, that, or a Twitter message, I think, the other day. They were like, I just did the snow tubing hill and survived at the Light the Nights Festival. Yep, it's at Truist Field Uptown. It's now through the 6th, so you've got three more nights to take advantage uh, and days. Um, they got the snow tubing hill. It's like 150 feet long, six lanes wide. They have a regulation-size outdoor hockey rink, and so you can... Uh, you can play hockey on it, but you can also skate, do figure skating, or just, you know, skate for fun. What else would that be? Leisure skate? Leisure skating? Is that what it's called? Um, they got light shows, live entertainment. They got Christmas trees and shopping and holiday treats. They just have a ton of stuff there. It's really, it's a it's an amazing site. You got to check it out. It's brought to you in part by Piedmont Natural Gas. Share the warmth. It is the Light the Nights Festival now through the 6th at Truist Field. Um, oh, watching the uh, House vote here. Oh, we have another contender. So Andy Biggs is out. I saw Jim Jordan making a speech earlier. So apparently Jim Jordan got nominated. And so now we got McCarthy, Hakeem Jeffries, and Jim Jordan. These are the three candidates now. So right now, uh, Jim Jordan's got seven votes. And McCarthy has 38 votes, and Jeffries has 45 votes. This is the second vote for North Car- or for U.S. Speaker of the House, and this will proceed until there is a Speaker of the House. And what happens is it becomes grueling. This is the way. So, like, this is a good example of the way like party primaries used to operate in the backfield room, smoke filled or the. The smoke-filled back rooms, right, where, you know, deals got cut and all that. You ever heard about how Lincoln got the nomination for the GOP? It's like deals get cut and, and oh, yeah, it's the horse trading, all this stuff. And so this is what's going to happen now as we go on. Now, the, the interesting thing is you got a lot of these House members that are there with family to be sworn in. And... Oh, so here it goes. McCarthy does not have the votes. Third speaker vote is expected, says C-SPAN. So they already know that. I guess they just know how many Republican votes 
go to Jordan. And as soon as they know how many that is, and, if, and, and so this is what guys, and Dan Bishop is one of them, this is what these Republicans have been demanding. Like, they want somebody else, but the, the rest of the GOP is not going to go along with it. So either, so what's going to happen? Either one of those two groups cave, and I don't think you're going to see the one, it's a larger cave for the McCarthy contingent. There's just way more of them, right? You got way more uh, representatives that are on board for McCarthy that in order to sort of pick them off, you would have to, you'd have to do a lot of negotiating and a lot of wrangling and giving away stuff and promising and all this other kind of thing, things that need to be done in order to get this position. So I, I don't, I think that's, that's a, it's a heavier lift. It's a bigger cave. I'm speaking in axioms, but um, I think then what you see is these holdouts here for uh, the, Jordan's up now before it was Biggs. Maybe they throw somebody else's name up there. But they're not going to they're not going to get more than what half a dozen votes or something. So what's the point? It's essentially a filibuster in the house, right? They're just going to keep going and going and going and going and going and eventually people are going to they're going to collapse. So what does that look like? Well, you end up having a deal cut that puts McCarthy in or you end up having McCarthy quit, right? Cause at some point McCarthy has to realize these people are refusing to vote for me. I don't have the votes. And if I can't get Democrats to support me, then I need, I need to, I need to abandon this quest. I, I don't have the votes, but then who Biggs, Jordan, somebody else, they don't have the support either. And then what? Do you just have people keep renominating McCarthy or do they start nominating Steve Scalise? I've even heard Patrick McHenry as being a potential, right? It, I mean, it, at some point, you get late enough in this ballot count, at some point, it just blows wide open. And they got to be careful that the Democrats don't use it to their advantage and install somebody that's going to make enacting their priorities easier to do. But we're talking about Republicans here, so I am sure they will find a way to mess it up. Uh, all right, let me go to uh, some of the uh, emails I've got here. No, no, not the dozen or so from Twitter from a decade ago that just came through today. Uh, after Duke apologized, they need to acknowledge the following for the power outages. Solar power and windmills are not a reliable source of power. Take that from a person who has lived with thermal solar panels for the past 30 years. Does not work at night or on cloudy and rainy days and on windless days. The windmills don't work. Right. I agree. I agree with that, by the way. This is from Tim. I agree with Tim. I have solar panels as well. They don't work. I can confirm they do not work at night. Now, if you get a battery, you can store some of the power that you are generating and then you send some of it back to Duke. So I do that. I send, you know, the, the power like while I'm here using the power at WBT. I, uh, I'm generating power on my house and I'm sending it back to Duke. See, so this job is like, it's making me more money that I'm actually paid. Cause I get the, what, like three cents on the dollar or something from, uh, from Duke, but I can confirm you don't get any power during the night unless you have a battery problem with the battery storage. Like this is engineering stuff where you can't transmit the electricity over long periods or long stretches of distance because uh, it, it, degrades over time it gets weaker 
And so it's a challenge to push that kind of energy over long distances, especially if it's solar generated. Um, you know, battery loss, like the, I think it doesn't hold the charge forever and that sort of thing. And you have to build up so much of it and drain so much of it and that kind of thing. So there, there, there are technical aspects to it that make it less than uh, ideal. Uh, huge solar farms. They are a blight planted on what was formerly beautiful farmland. Yeah, but have you ever seen them tear down forests to put up the environmental uh, solar farms? It looks ridiculous up in the mountains, too. You have mountains covered in solar panels. Like, oh, no, no, I don't want to see those beautiful mountains. No, give me some mirrors. That's better. Yeah. Plus, vegetation lost to the solar farms are not helping to either produce food or helping to mitigate the so-called carbon dioxide problem. There's always a need for what is called base power. Nuclear and coal-fired plants. Gas-fired generating plants are considered peaking power. Duke Energy is following seriously misdirected demands from the federal and North Carolina state governments concerning coal power. Until a new safe power source is perfected, coal power will be needed. AOC and others be damned. Duke Energy laid off or prematurely retired engineers who would have advised to not pursue the company's current direction. I actually know a few of them. Now, that is interesting. That is interesting. Thank you, Tim. I appreciate it. And, uh... This is from Stan. The problem with energy production in this country is that in most all cases, it's controlled by a government-regulated monopoly and based on an environmental ideology that distributes energy politically as opposed to market demand. That's from Stan. Um, yeah, the, the big takeaway I had was that we are not generating enough electricity and the only constant energy producer that doesn't peak and ebb up and down, up and down was nuclear. That was the constant. I'd say we need another nuclear plant in North Carolina. You can't keep growing like we're growing and not build more energy plants. Solar panels are not going to cut it. And I say that as a solar panel owner. Talk 1110 WBT. WB. WB. You got to say it like that. Uh, <laughs> let me see. I got a couple of. Got a couple of tweets here. Direct messages. They're not exactly Pete tweets, but they're pretty close. Gary says, Pete, good news. As of last month, I am a North Carolina licensed electrician. If you need a generator wired, thank you very much. Um, and uh, let's see here. This is from the Hellion. Oh, no, wait. He's got a couple here. He hates his guts. It's mind-boggling. Adam Kinzinger may as well have been Epps' personal attorney. Yeah, reading through that transcript, it was pretty bad. From what I've read, those being held did far less than what Epps did. I, I, I agree. Ray Epps... Look, I'm not advocating for harsher punishment for any of the people that were that walked into the Capitol. People that busted heads and windows, absolutely. If you engaged in riotous activity, I want the same charges against you as, you know, the Black Lives Matter and Antifa folks and the people who rioted all around our state. Like, same thing. I want a consistent application of a standard, a.k.a. a law. Everybody operates under the same law. We all get the same penalties. And I don't think you get to imprison the 70-year-old grandma, you know, on uh, 
uh, on chemo, I don't think you get to toss her in, in jail and and make Ray Epps sort of the, the hero of the story. Um, this is from Russ. He says, I remember a lot of folks on Twitter saying, stay away from the Capitol and the rally leading up to the 6th. I also remember seeing the January 5th video of Epps that night before the events of the 6th. And my initial impression was blowhard, but benefit of the doubt. However, the more I've heard people explain his actions and having seen the testimony, every syllable more makes it look more shady. Right. See, and again, this is the problem. The the fact that we were deprived a legitimate, credible investigation because Nancy Pelosi refused to let two members onto the January 6th committee. Jim Jordan, and I forget the other one. Wouldn't let him on. And so the Republicans were like, well, no, if you're not going to, because that, that's usually what you do. You're like, okay, House Minority Leader, give me your slate. And they were like, here's our slate of, of people to be on this committee. And she's like, no, not these people. And they're like, well, that's not how this goes. And, she, and Pelosi's like, well, it is now. They're not on. And they were like, well, then screw you. We're not going to give this thing any kind of a veneer of credibility. And then, of course, you know, Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger were like, we'll do it. We'll do it. So then, you know, they joined it. Um, here's something else uh, related. Mark Meadows. Meadows, as John Boehner used to call him. The uh, North Carolina Department of Justice today. So our state DOJ. This is Josh Stein's office. Announced that there is not, I repeat, not sufficient evidence to bring charges against Mark Meadows or his wife, Deborah Meadows, for alleged voter fraud involving the 2020 election. There is not sufficient evidence to bring charges. Uh, Could it be the fact that he signed a year-long lease for that residence that was provided by the landlord to the DOJ? So they had a lease. Yeah. Mm. Key piece of information that, if I recall correctly, was never part of the original story about Mark Meadows. Oh, my gosh. Look at he's living in a cabin. Yeah. Uh, apparently, he leased it. Probably with the intent to then leave the property after whatever happened in D.C. was done happening. And he would then go to either Mar-a-Lago with Donald Trump, right, go to Florida, stay in D.C., get a job up there somewhere, or, you know, come back and look for a place in North Carolina again. I don't know what his plans were. I have not spoken to Mark Meadows in like two years. The last time I talked with him, I got a, sent him a, a text message. He sent me a reply. The J6, he, they have already seen this. I'm kidding. They don't care about that. I was like, hey, you want to come on the show? And he's like, well, we're getting ready to touch down in Iowa or something, and I'll see what I can do. And then that was the last I heard of him. So, yeah, he and his wife signed a year-long lease for a residence in uh, in Scaly Mountain. Uh, and, oh, also, cell phone records showed Mrs. Meadows was in and around Scaly Mountain in October of 2020. Meadows also, Mark Meadows, was engaged in public service in Washington, D.C., and therefore qualified for a residency exception pursuant to North Carolina state law, which I pointed out at the time. But Josh Stein, being all steiny about it, being all democratic, 
He put out the statement that says the State Bureau of Investigation conducted an extensive investigation into the fraud allegations. And after a thorough review, my office has concluded there's not sufficient evidence to bring charges against either of them in this matter. Mr. Meadows has made numerous unfounded damaging allegations about voter fraud both before and after the 2020 election. In addition, in its referral to the U.S. Department of Justice, the bipartisan January 6th Congressional Committee named Mr. Meadows as a likely co-conspirator over his central role in the January 6th insurrection. This attempt to disrupt the peaceful transition of power represents one of the most significant assaults on our democracy in the 246-year history of our nation. The appropriate authorities will now fully vet these referrals. I urge federal prosecutors to hold accountable every single person who engaged in a conspiracy to put our democracy at risk. But none of that matters. (laughs) I'm not kidding. That's literally the next sentence. None of that matters. None of the matters involving January 6th are relevant to the specific allegations of voter fraud. So why are you bringing this up? Why would Josh Stein spend two paragraphs on everything I just read to then immediately turn around and say, oh, yeah, none of that matters. None of this is relevant. It's not relevant to the specific allegations of voter fraud. That's why I said Josh Stein's going to Stein. It's what he does. Don't expect anything else. He's... He's simply the scorpion. All right, stick around. Brett Winterbull is up next. I will see you tomorrow. Don't break anything while I'm gone.